All right, we're live. Coming at you live from Joy, <laughs> Tandor, and Curry. Today, I am joined with the one and only Mark Hirschberg. Can I request a quick intro, sir? I am. I actually met Kevin, must have been six, seven years ago, maybe six years ago. And uh, I am now an entertainment lawyer in New York, where I do theater, film, and television work. And you also have a fun side gig. I do. I am a contributor at Forbes, where I write a column about the business of Broadway. How'd you get into the Forbes thing? I always found that interesting. It's a long story. Uh, so I was actually always interested in Broadway. I grew up on Long Island, and uh, my parents would take me to see shows. And actually, uh, I started working in Manhattan when I was in high school. In high school. And so um, when you're like 14 years old, there's only so much you can do after work. So I would see a lot of sports games and then also see a lot of Broadway shows. So I was always interested in it as a fan. And then when I was a senior in college, um, I was in the uh, School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell. And uh, to graduate with honors, you needed to write an honors thesis and it somehow needed to be related to the topic of labor relations and I didn't want to write about like striking factory workers or anything. <laughs> so I decided that I would create a uh, statistical uh, model, uh, algorithm essentially to predict how long Broadway shows run for. And that was my honors thesis. And so um, it got some attention because it was, um, pr my research was profiled in variety during my orientation program of law school and a lot of Broadway producers were reaching out and trying to hire me as like an associate producer. And so I was obviously focused on law school and I sort of put them on the back burner and was like, I'll, I'll help you a bit and maintain those connections. But I wanted to focus on law school. And after my first year of law school, when I lined up a job that would lead to full-time employment after I graduated, I decided to focus again on Broadway and so I um, wrote a book, actually, um, about a financial fraud that happened on Broadway. I was working with the victim of a fraud, sort of helping him write his memoir as a co-author. And um, I was doing that for academic credit, and then the project sort of blew up at the last minute, and I needed to continue writing something to get that academic credit. And so I pitched myself to various publications, the New York Post, uh, Cranes, and Forbes. And I've been writing at Forbes for, I think today may actually be like my three-year anniversary. So. Oh, yo, congrats. Thank you. <laughs> um, but it's been a really great experience. Um, I write about um, the financing, the legal issues, the real estate, everything about the business. So... I've learned a lot, and um, that's really influenced my career now, being an entertainment lawyer, which was not what I had planned. It's crazy to hear that a guy in ILR, Industrial Labor Relations, made an algorithm, and the algorithm was advanced enough that people in the industry were actually catching on and contacting this guy in his early 20s for it. Is there just not any sophistication with analytics or anything like that in Broadway, or do you think you just had something in terms of knowledge that maybe they didn't pick up on? I think Broadway is very uh, stuck in its ways. They don't really change that much. I mean, algorithms have been used 
in Hollywood for decades, especially when it comes to predicting the success of films in the box office. I mean, they will know within about three days how much money they will make through all types of revenue streams with films. And I think for Broadway, a lot of producers sort of trusted uh, and still trust their gut feeling. They just think that they have this maybe divine power to know what works and what doesn't work. So when it comes to data, a lot of them are hesitant to use it, which is very strange, but that's just how it is. It's a very old-fashioned industry. And so um, there, there had been some academic studies that had sort of predicted how well shows do, but um, my study looked at factors which are known before they have a show together, um, which is really important to investors and producers because like I remember one of the other algorithms that had been created had looked at like attendance during the first week of performances. And at that point, it's too late because like you already have a show on Broadway. You've spent like $15 million or so. So um, my algorithm sort of looked at objective factors before any, a single dollar is spent on anything, um, which I think appealed to some of the younger producers who are more progressive and willing to actually look at data in terms of making decisions. Did the algorithm go anywhere? Um, I decided not to sell or license it. Um, there's certainly a lot of producers who actually still call me and try to like use it, um, but I didn't really want to um, profit off it. And I think that there may have actually been like IP-related issues with the university because I, it, I had done it as part of an academic study and the university may have been able to claim ownership or get some profits and stuff. So, yeah. Wow. It's pretty crazy that you ended up doing that, but you went straight to law. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was always interested in... Um, going to law school and becoming a lawyer, uh, I was really fascinated growing up with the Enron fraud. <laughs> and um, I always liked how s stories have different layers and um, the same thing could happen and two people could have entirely different stories about it and how things aren't as they seem. And so it was that sort of creative aspect that sort of drew me to the legal profession to pursue a career in white-collar criminal law which I'm obviously not doing anymore. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I chose the big law firm that I started out based on their reputation for white-collar criminal defense work. And I had worked, actually, at the uh, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which is a government regulator. Um, and it was actually really fascinating work. But um, my uh, path changed after I graduated because the... Uh, administration changed in Washington when I was in law school and the uh, government sort of had diverted some of its attention and so they were focusing more on Main Street investors and stuff which the big law firms aren't doing as much and then when it came to getting my practice group assignment I didn't get white-collar criminal defense so I uh, looked into other opportunities and now you're actually doing entertainment. I am. <clears throat> yeah, I'm probably one of the youngest, if not the youngest, entertainment lawyer in New York. Really? Uh, at least at like a <coughs> sizable, sizable firm. And it seems like even as a lawyer in entertainment, you're able to make a pretty big impact. Like you're telling me the level of ownership that you have over certain clients 
So, I don't know if you can disclose it or not, but it's just so tremendous. I mean, I think that's one of the things. So previously when I was at a large firm, you're just sort of like a cog in a wheel and all these big matters. I mean, they're much larger matters, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to mergers and acquisitions and stuff. Um, I was actually working in litigation at uh, the big firm, but um, when you're at a smaller firm, like there's less people who can actually work on it. So you sort of need to hit the ground running, but I negotiate deals, I draft them. I mean, I do all the aspects of the deals independently. And that's just one of the benefits of working at a smaller firm. You get a lot more exposure, which makes you more valuable as a lawyer. And I, in a weird way, I feel like smaller firms are more invested in your personal development as an individual because they want you to bring in business, which a big firm, like you're just like a body. Like you, you do have a name, but it's just like you're just simply someone who can do the work and they'll bill out at like $800 an hour or something. It's not like they don't really want you to I mean, they do want you to develop skills and stuff, but in terms of your own development, I mean, they, they, they really want to make sure that the firm is getting all the attention, not you as an individual, because you can leave, and most lawyers at big firms do. So, yeah, I, I feel like entertainment, from what you've told me, seems to be an industry where kind of taking a deeper look and not being so rooted in your old ways means that you can make an impact if you're like very opportunistic. One example might be the algorithm. The second might be able to provide, you know, specialized legal services mm -hmm. that you do as a lawyer, right? Like if you have a particular skill set and you come into this industry, which doesn't seem to be so innovative, it seems like you can take on quite a bit. Yeah, is that the I wrong mean, impression? There is a lot of innovation, especially within the television space. And by television, I'm not referring to like broadcasts, like also streaming and stuff. Um, but I think that, I mean, most of the, entertainment lawyers have been doing it for like 40 years or so. So by coming in, being young and like scrappy and like hungry, um, there's a lot of opportunities there. And also you do have the ability, especially when it comes to like streaming and like my firm does a ton of podcasting work as well. And there's just when like, for example, with podcasting, like you can sort of set the rules of the game because it's a relatively new um, field. I mean, it, to an extent, it's based on radio and elements of film are in there as well. But like when you're drafting these contracts, you can sort of create your own precedent, which is really neat. And same thing, excuse me, I, mean, I was working on a deal earlier today for um, a streaming platform, a television program, an animated half hour series. And like a lot of those things, like we are still navigating that territory because you have a lot of new streaming platforms that are going to launch over the next few months and just determining how those deals are gonna be made is new uncharted territory. So it's a really neat time to be an entertainment lawyer. As a writer who I think <clears throat> you basically look at the entertainment industry as a whole and just pick certain topics that you're interested about and you write like one or two a month, right? two yeah. articles a month. What are some maybe subsectors of the industry or some trends that are kind of interesting that a layman might not observe? This could be something on the back end. This could be something on the front end. This could be, you know, how they track things. You know, what's an interesting trend about the entertainment industry that maybe me or another guy on the street wouldn't know? I mean, I think 
one thing that may surprise some people, especially in regards to Broadway, is that there's actually more money made each week on the road than made on Broadway. So Broadway is like 41 theaters in Manhattan. But like, for example, when Hamilton goes on tour to like smaller cities, it like those are bigger like um, theaters. Uh, the one on Broadway is probably only about like 1400 seats, but it's playing like 3000 seat theaters and it sells out. So they're charging a, a little less per ticket, but they're making a lot more money. So like when they're like, when you look at Broadway and you see how well it's doing, it's actually doing even better elsewhere in smaller cities like Oklahoma and stuff. When there's like one big show, like a few, like four shows that come to town each year. And so um, it's really fascinating to know about that. And then also, um, I think another thing with Broadway that's interesting to me is how the theater companies are really real estate companies. And their real concern is sort of like they, the, some of them cash in on these air rights for millions of dollars. So it's just really interesting to think about how all the different aspects of the industry make money and all, where their interests are. And all so that when stuff. all their crew members are flying somewhere to perform, you're saying all the air miles and points, the companies are crew and not the individuals. No, no. I'm talking about the theaters mm -hmm. in New York City. They have like perhaps unlimited feet of air rights. And so they sell it to developers in the area who then are able to build higher hotels and stuff using the air rights from the above the theaters. It's like a... Oh, so they can add... If you have a three-story structure, you can actually add another building on top and they're selling the rights to do that? Yes. And they can transfer it within the theater district in New York City. And so basically they sell those for like $240 million and stuff. It's just like, it's amazing that there's that potential that can be unlocked for theater owners, which is interesting. It, so with how big of a revenue source is that? Is that almost comparable to tickets? Some of these alternative sources? So um, the theater owners, I mean, they get a percentage of the box office, but one of the things, at least regarding air rights, is it's a one-time thing. Like, you, you essentially have, like, a bundle of sticks. And once you give away that stick, like, you can't sell it anymore. So um, I think they need to be careful about when they choose to sell it and wait for the market to be right. But it's one of those things that maybe about, maybe even 30 years ago, you never heard about this thing. And then within the past like 10, 15 years, you've, you've seen these like massive deals and some of them haven't been publicly reported, but uh, a lot of these theater owners are cashing in on massive uh, air rights transactions. Are the, are the actual performances in a bit of a decline that they have to pursue these alternative sources or are they just trying to diversify in a way? I mean, it's just money on the table, like money that they could easily get. So um, the shows that are on Broadway are not generally produced by the theater owners. It's independent producers or like Disney or something that comes in. And um, so they're making a ton of money. But I think a lot of people on Broadway have been looking for more ways to make money and additional revenue streams. And I think another thing you're seeing now is more and more filmed 
productions that are being shot in London because the union, uh, the unions there are weaker and st- everything is cheaper. So the labor is cheaper. And so I'm going to stop you. So I went to London, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and I went to the West End or whatever. Yeah. And like day of, I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch Wicked like three hours before. Mm-hmm. Then I go on the website and like tickets for Wicked are like 20 bucks or something. I get to the theater and like, like the, the impression that I have of watching this stuff is like, okay, there's like $200 tickets. If you go to Broadway, it's kind of like an event. You sort of have to dress somewhat nicely. You're going to pay a high price. I went to the West End and like $20 tickets. It's like there's a bachelorette party sitting right next to me. Like this place is half empty. And these like elite like performers are performing, I presume. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so confused. I was like, okay, London is not a place I was particularly in love with. But after that value prop, I'm like, I would come to London just to watch shows every day. Why is there such a discrepancy with that versus like, me, like, I remember, like, my first time watching one of this stuff was sitting behind a pillar on 41st Street and, like, peeking out and looking for Simba in Lion King when I was in first grade for, like, 80 bucks. I mean, a lot of it comes down to union prices. And though unions in London, everything is just <clears throat> sort of cheaper. I mean, productions that cost $6 million or so in London, when they come to Broadway, then they're going to cost, like, 18 I mean, the costs are just night and day difference is it a labor thing it's primarily labor yes i was shocked it yeah. was it was like you just go there to hang out because you have air conditioning it's like that kind of feel mm-hmm. over there um i mean they don't publicly report their grosses like they do on broadway but in london tickets are much cheaper i mean i saw it wicked i was sitting in the third row of the orchestra and i paid 62 like american u.s dollars and like that that would be like $180 at the Gershwin yeah. Theater on Broadway. So it's just sort of amazing that there's that discrepancy. So is there is for, is like front row like the best place to sit for these performances? Cuz I remember there are certain like off Broadway shows like I watched like Avenue Q once mm-hmm. and I went front row for that because I like stood in line in the morning at like 5 a.m. And I get up there. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm so close to these guys. But at the same time, my neck hurts. Yeah. And like I need a visor to like wipe all the, like the, the spit off of me from the actors. Yeah. I and mean, I'm wondering, it, is this really the best seating or what? It's sort of it's sort of like going to a movie theater. Like I wouldn't want to sit in the first row of a movie because the same thing with your neck. Mm. Um, and also, at least on Broadway, there's a show right now called uh, Linda Vista at the Second Stage Theater. But the stage is very high, so if you're and there's actually like nudity scenes, which is a whole other thing. I mean, there's been nudity scenes before, but there's like simulated sex scenes, and like it's just amazing what they're doing there. Is it? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> but. Um, the stage is really high, so if you're sitting in the front row, like you're missing all the action, really. So um, generally, I mean, the house seats are generally located around like the fifth, sixth, seventh row, usually on the aisles. So I would suggest generally center orchestra um, in the front, but not the very front, closer to the stage, but a little towards the middle, so you can get you can actually see like further. Um, like the uh, deeper edge of the stage. This is a dumb question. It's my last one on this, right? But if I go to watch, because I, I have a friend who watched Hamilton in Durham, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Is it the same performers? It's, or is it the traveling crew is different? The traveling crew is different. There's probably, I think, three different touring companies of Hamilton. 
Um, and I mean, they're all probably the same, like practically the same, um, but they are different performers. But the show itself should be the same. They're all replica productions. How much is it tied to the performers? Because I remember Lin Manuel and like the original crew. Mm-hmm. Their last show, it was like you could buy the White House with the amount of money you needed to pay to get yeah. in that show, right? Yeah. And to a certain extent, like, yeah, I would pay like that kind of money to get the OG crew with the actual creator on mm-hmm. there. But in your opinion, how different is it? Am I losing a lot by watching like crew number three in Durham? So one thing I want to mention is that actually the original cast was recorded and there's a bidding war going on for the, that recording. I think it's right now it's $50 million or so for that um, recording, which may be released theatrically or for a streaming platform, but probably Netflix wants it. Um, and then regarding your question, I think a lot of it depends on like who's on the touring. Sometimes you do get like well-known people, but I mean, <clears throat> to an extent, like most people like I I saw small productions at like storefront theaters in Chicago and like there's amazing talent I saw a show over the weekend at with like NYU Tisch students and like some of them were really talented so you're going to see like talented people on stage anywhere I mean they're even though it's a touring production presuming that it's a equity tour like a late unionized tour the producers are like still approving it and, like, they're not going to send out something that could hurt the brand of the show because um, they don't want someone to, like, watch it in Durham and be like, this person can't sing, it's a crap. And then <laughs> it, like, gets back and it could affect the Broadway production. So, like, they're still trying to maintain the quality. But generally, I mean, the, the, produ- the performers are going to be good. Generally, if you can, the original cast is probably the, among the best. But then it also depends on, like, who's replacing it. I mean, right now, like, the people in Wicked, like, I'm sure they're talented, but it's it's going to be on par probably with any touring production that you see. Um, yeah, but sometimes you do get celebrities to replace people, like Jordan Sparks from, I think, American Idol is a waitress now. And, like, I heard audio of her singing in the show, and she's fantastic, so... Waitresses are a couple of people. Sarah Bray. Sarah Jason Bareilles. Bareilles. Yeah. Jason uh, Mraz. Jason Mraz. Um, Gavin Creel. Uh, there's been a lot of different people who have joined it. It's like a training ground or something? Like? So it's actually the same producers as Chicago, uh-huh. the, which has been running around yeah. for forever. Right. And their strategy is just to get celebrities and keep on doing this stunt casting to get new audiences in and i think there are some people who like once their favorite stars come into the show they'll go buy tickets again so Uh, on that note favorite soundtrack favorite soundtrack i think probably the phantom of the opera i mean it's a classic um like the gold standard um but it's a tough choice because there's so many um fantastic shows that I've heard over the years. Yeah, do you have a favorite? No. Lion King? <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to the Hamilton soundtrack because people uh-huh. have said, like, that's that's the real draw. Yeah, I mean, you would like it. It's, like, inspired it's like by a ton of hip-hop artists. Like, yeah. You all know your the, favorites. Yeah, like, a funny thing about it is Lin-Manuel went to high school that I went to. It's true. Yeah. He was also a sub there, right? 
he was he i know someone else i met a girl in law school who went to your high school um she's older than you allison frost but um her english like substitute teacher was mr manuel (laughs) that's crazy i remember back in the day like well we would have like theater productions at our school and he would like secretly show up like halfway through the show to watch and this was when he wrote like in the heights and won what was that award yeah won the tony award tony yeah and, like, people kind of knew him because he won the Tony, but he, it wasn't, like, Hamilton level. So, he'd be like, oh, it's Lin-Manuel. Okay, let's watch the show. Like, Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like that. crazy because I remember this must have been when I was a sophomore in college. But I saw him, like, on a street corner in Manhattan. And, I, like, I recognized him, but no one else did. And I feel like now, like, you, like he would be mobbed. He would be mobbed. And in our alumni group, like, shortly after Hamilton came out, people kept tagging him. Oh, really? Being like, hey, like, the class of 68's having a reunion. We're thinking Hamilton. What do you think, Lin-Manuel? I'm like, never respond. <laughs> Obviously, right? It's like yeah. half, the, half the poster like that. But the interesting thing is, like, I, I found it funny that it was a hip-hop soundtrack because I think he was in the same class or it, roughly around the same time as Immortal Technique yeah. who's another New York City rapper, actually. Has he done anything recently? Immortal Technique. Yeah. No, he had this one song that's Dance way too explicit. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. That it's I used to song. rap a lot uh, in high school. Yeah. But I think Immortal Technique, whatever his actual name was, used to actually like throw Lin Manuel in like the trash cans. Oh really? It's like that's a funny. funny little urban rumor. I don't know if it's real or not, but it's probably real. That's like, <laughs> so it was like kind of funny when I heard like Hamilton's basically like hip hop. Like I wow. guess like that particular time at Hunter was uh, quite a time. Hmm. I guess. Interesting. What was it like when you were there? I mean, like, there was definitely a big... There's still a big focus on theater and, like, liberal really? arts. Okay. Like, theater is, like, a really big thing, and people go to, like... Cynthia Nixon went there. That's right. And Cynthia Nixon. Some other... Kagan. Oh, yeah. Kagan's brother was my social studies teacher. And you were cited in that article. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. I believe... So, I think, like, when Elena Kagan hit the court... They were, like, talking about her family, and, like, she also went to our school, blah, 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 and her brother went to our school, too, and they are talking about her brother, and they were, like, trying to dig up anything on the internet to find out what this guy's like in the classroom. I think this was the Wall Street Journal, right? I believe it was that publication, (laughs) yes. Yeah, and the Wall Street Journal was, like, quoting, like, students off RateMyTeachers.com, where I had written a endearing but slightly offensive comment about him. (laughs) I forgot. Do you remember what it was? I don't remember. But that was the one time I was in the Wall Street Journal. That's true. Which was fascinating because I hadn't even begun my professional career. And I'm already on the front page, right? Like, what am I, what am I working for now, right? <laughs> I just need a living wage. Oh so that was gosh. pretty funny. I, I forgot about that, actually. Yeah. It's a good anecdote. Yeah, I mean, like, liberal arts was strong. Hence, we have all these people, like, going into acting or, like, going into law and all of that. So. so what are your former classmates up to now? Med school... At this point in time, I'm 26, right? So, like, a lot of med school, a lot of law school, some people in business school. Yeah, it was a lot of people towards medicine and law, not a lot towards towards finance. The businessy people, I think a good number went into consulting, but not that much. It was very much focused on, like, law and medicine. Hmm. Just, like, I don't know. Because half the school is, like, Asian kids from, like, working-class backgrounds who, like, wanted to go up the ladder, right? And so... Is business you can kind of paint valued? that stereotype. Hmm? Is business not as valued within the, like, finance? 
I mean, I think it can be respectable. Like you tell someone you're an investment banker and like the average person's like, oh, that's amazing, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But yeah, I mean, I think like making a lot of money and being like high status and th- those things that typically sure. draw people to that kind of career, in high school at least, people weren't really thinking about those things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think fields like law and medicine are maybe a little bit more intellectual and have that kind of appeal because they're a little bit more bookish, I mm-hmm. would say. Yep. Um, so yeah, most people went into those fields and are doing fairly well, I would say, but yeah, I mean, how was your high school? Uh, it was very science oriented, although not too, I mean, there's some of my classmates who are now like becoming doctors, but, um, really not many going into law and a whole mix. I think a lot of people who so I went to a very Indian high school and their parents were all doctors and stuff. So there was that big push into the, um, medical field. Um, and I think some of them are now working in like the health care, uh, the health sciences sort of field, but not as doctors. So a mix, but, um, I think I'm like one of two or three lawyers. Oh really? That's all. Yeah. Not a, not a big, uh, um, push to the legal profession. I mean, do you think you'll stay in law? Because I think whenever you and I and Iggy get together, the two of you guys being lawyers, I think the magic of law disappears a little bit from my head when I get to know the day-to-day. I mean, a lot of what I'm doing, although it's like contracts and stuff, it's really more of like business negotiations. So um, I think, I mean, I'll always be a lawyer. Will I be practicing law? probably not as much in the future because I think eventually I'll probably end up more on the producing side and more as like an executive, but still like, like I can sort of negotiate my own contracts and stuff. So, um, I think having that training makes me a lot more valuable and opens up a lot of doors. Yeah, I mean, my other friend who just started at a firm, Mm -hmm. the whole point of law school is like, he just wanted like a general skill set. And I think I'm getting a similar kind of vibe from you where it's a valuable skill set to have, but you may not be using it as your primary kind of like occupation moving forward. Is that the right way to read it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's very few lawyers who actually stick with the profession forever. I think a lot of them become... uh, dissatisfied with working at the big firms and stuff and then they choose to pursue other things but I think also like within the entertainment space this is probably true actually across all areas of law but um, I think for some individuals like you're essentially like the guy helping Rocky on the side of the fight. <laughs> I mean, you're helping them with their deals as a lawyer, but you're like an advisor. And yeah. I think at some point people want to get into the ring themselves. So yeah. I think that's when you see like lawyers who started off as like corporate associates, then going to like be like Lloyd Blankfein and like running a bank yeah. and stuff. So, um, I think that, uh, affects a lot of people. And also like within the entertainment space, probably a lot of them have like, creative desires and want to go be producers and stuff so well, last question on law you did the whole big law thing i did now you're at a small firm focusing on an industry that you actually like love right mm-hmm. you're on the other side of the fence in some sense so to all the kids who are in law school or just started their big law gig like literally last month 
Any comments? Uh, well, I definitely think you should start your career at a big law firm. It's definitely good to get that on your resume. And um, to an extent, just sort of, I think it's important to make the most of your experience there. So try to get as much practical experience as possible uh, because I think it's very easy to sort of just be like a mindless machine just sort of doing stuff and not really understanding it. But try to like, regardless of whether or not you're doing litigation or doing like transactional work, try to really focus on your development as a lawyer and getting exposure to different types of contracts and different types of cases and really like mastering that area, presuming that that's something you want to do. I mean, if, if you're like me wanting to be an entertainment lawyer and in litigation, it's probably not worth your time to become really good at litigation. But um, I think it is important to really focus on developing your skills and making sure that you are becoming the best lawyer that you can be. So tell us a little bit about what's been going on in your life, because you mentioned that you're going to be moving, not, switching not only jobs, but switching countries. That's correct. So what prompted all of this? I mean, I think I was pretty unhappy with my first job out of college doing consulting and looked for jobs for three years. Not totally sure what I wanted. I guess like mo you know, at the beginning, it was more about, like, let's move to a more prestigious room and then op open up more optionality. Mm -hmm. Then as time wore on, that didn't really work out. And I thought, you know, what's another way to kind of change up my life so that I would have the same rate of progression that I had experienced in college? You know, every semester in college, you meet new people, you have new experiences, you really feel like, wow, every day is truly meaningful um, from a growth standpoint. And so I thought, from a professional sense, if I'm lacking direction... And I'm not succeeding at the interviews that I want to succeed at. Let me at least like switch location. Mm -hmm. So forcing myself into a new place because, you know, growing up in New York and then going to school locally, like wasn't very helpful in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, that might be the way forward. So I apply for every job in Asia, um, not, not in Asia, but within Asia, like the two cities that had English as a working language, like Hong Kong and Singapore mm -hmm. um, on LinkedIn, just like every day for like a month. Did you need to get a premium account for that? No. So no, actually like the job listings pages, oh, you don't okay. need premium. It's just when you're looking at profiles. Sure. It's an issue when you're trying to stalk people to get their emails. Exactly. And stuff. Yeah. After a while you get a little bit more strategic about it. Um, but yeah, I mean the listings was fine. So I just, I literally applied to everything just to see what would happen. A targeted approach made sense at some point. But after a while, I realized I had no idea, like, what companies are, like, desirable or what kind of roles would even take me with mm -hmm. my experience. So I applied for everything uh, with the word strategy in it. Oh, wow. It's analogous to consulting sure. and industry, right? And, yeah, I mean, like, after a bunch of phone interviews where they were like, okay, well, why do you want to come here? Why do you want to come to Southeast Asia? And then I would be like, okay, well, listen... You know, it's a high growth region. I have family and friends in the area. I want to get exposure, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, have you ever lived here? And I said, no. And they're like, well, bye. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, they're like 20 of those. Like, it, ranging from a startup to like big companies, like they would all go through that same cadence of questioning. And mm -hmm. like, that was it. Thankfully, this company, which is Dell, 
um they were like okay that's fine you know come through we just need someone who can make slides and i'm like okay i could do that like i've been looking at squares my whole life right like that's it so i mean that was it and like money wise it was when i did the math it was the same after cost of living and all all my other commitments at home and all of that so okay like same amount of money live in a new place Mm -hmm. check it out i mean i think the city itself isn't terribly appealing i visited once four years ago and once a lot two months ago wow and i thought okay weather's nice because it's warm but this city is like much sleepier than i would like <laughs> i wanted like more of a frenetic yeah. new york i mean is place. there anything any place you visited that's like new york that's like new york i mean i went Not to law school in chicago and it was like chicago is whack it went to like everything shut down around like 7 p.m. That's the problem, right? Like yeah. that's why like within the U.S. I had no interest because everywhere is a lot less vibrant and like less night nightlife focused. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a nightlife guy, but like you I kind of like want convenience at night. Yeah. yeah. So I thought Asia is just like you just think of like really like, you know, buildings stacked on top of each other. Yeah. Like people barely squeezing through streets and I'm like, oh, that's great. Right? <laughs> Singapore happens to be the one place that's like master planned and master designed so that it feels humane wide streets trees everywhere like it's like it's kind of like a sub not suburban Mm -hmm. but it really feels like somewhere that a family could live and like not feel suffocated while still having kind of the city-like economy um which might work for me in 20 years but not right now so i mean i think it's the city wasn't ideal but it being a new place and it being a place that is in a pretty fun region of the world i think in terms of like growth sure that could be appealing so that's more or less the story um had a interesting offer in india hmm. for dahlberg which is a kind of a development consulting agency we're speaking in an indian restaurant right? that's now. correct <laughs> <laughs> um so i would have been eating this all the time which was awesome yeah but the pay was i'm, I'm not i'm not a guy with rich tastes but it would have been tough. Are there any that weird, kind of like, incentives that are offered to employees internationally that you don't see here? Like, are the compensation packages structured differently? In these cases, no. Okay. But I've heard of, like, EY Belgium, I think. You would get a car as part of your comp package. So your salary is a little bit lower, but you get, like, a free BMW or something because oh, wow. you have to drive to all the yeah. clients all the time. Did you consider, like, transferring internally? I knew it was going to be a lot of work. It wouldn't be easy because it's not one international company. But it's also like I knew if I went somewhere else, the pay would be a lot lower and I'd be doing similar work. I just Mm -hmm. wanted a complete change. This job still consists of making slides and doing an internal consulting role. Sure. Which, I mean, it's what it is. I guess it makes it easier for me to kind of professionally not fall behind while I'm dealing with all this personal stuff Mm -hmm. that'll inevitably come about. So... Um, that's more or less the logic of why internally they didn't want, didn't make too much sense for me, but this kind of gig was palatable and seemed like a rel- you know, relatively decent choice to like take on, I guess. So you were actually supposed to start the job like probably yeah. a few weeks ago. So I got the offer in July <laughs> yeah. and I was bickering with the, the folks over there in terms of like comp and all of that. Um, you didn't have to fly there for an interview, right? No, th- that's the funny thing about it. They don't know what I look like. Not at all? Like you it's, didn't even have like a video interview? No, you would think, dude, like the guys in India, they had 
they did a video interview like one or two or three times throughout the process. So they sort of know what I look like. Yeah. But the guys in Singapore, which has like high speed internet, right? Like this is a developed country. You better hope so. <laughs> yeah. Like they're, they're like, no, it's like completely over the phone. So it's like, it's a little weird. I could be a 45 year old man who's had a long career, who's interviewing on behalf of his son and they wouldn't even know. That's very It's strange. purely over. So when I show up on the first day, I have to like wave my hands and stuff and be like, I'm hey, kinda- do you remember <laughs> this voice? Like, <laughs> it's the American guy. <laughs> so like, that's literally what's going to happen. So yeah, really it's funny, man. It's the kind of globalized, like international cross-border hiring, I guess, isn't, I would imagine, a huh. perfected process. Interesting. Just yet. Yeah, now, now that I think about it, I could have just asked a case coach here to just, like, go do all the cases for me on the phone. Oh, they were case interviews, too? Yeah, it was, like, uh, classic, like, oh, consulting. Because wow. all, all the people in the team were, like, ex-consultants at big consulting firms. Mm-hmm. I could have just paid a guy here, like, you know, one of these guys who, like, prep you for interviews? Yeah, I yeah. don't think they do that for law because it's behavioral, like, right? I, I mean, they just ask you, like, they go through your resume and stuff. It's yeah, not, it's specific to your experiences. Yeah. But, like, the case is, like, ha- it's, like, half orchestrated mm-hmm. and half framer you got to know what words to use to sound smart what kind of order to like go through the case to like make and they it did seem that like all you know on the stuff. phone yeah i mean even practice cases and for consulting firms you can do phone interviews for huh. most of it that was the same thing with india as well sure in, in person the only difference is like you're more nervous Interesting. <laughs> and you can like show your paper and stuff if you want to but yeah um that was more or less the process. They don't know what I look like. So well, they will. They will. So that that should be an interesting process, I guess. So yeah, I mean I was supposed to start a month back. They messed up on their on applying for my visa, which I was not happy about. Mm-hmm. Cuz I got the reject email the day I quit my job. Oh wow. So I got the flu for like 3 4 days afterwards and that's why I couldn't meet you and Iggy to yeah. record this earlier. And since then, I've just been studying for the GMAT and just taking some time off. And I think it's been pretty good. I mean, I, I, my frugal senses are tingling. Like, How's it studying for the GMAT? Like, I'm how taking many years out of college are you? Three? Four. Four now? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I wish I took it in school. A lot of people take it in school, and I would advise the same. Because, first of all, time is a lot easier to get a hold of when you're like in school, mm-hmm. obviously. Do you feel like you could have made the time for it when you were in school? Yeah, I didn't do anything in oh, school okay. back then. You know me. Like, yeah. The, I wasn't exactly like a book. Like, the rest of our hallway was bookworms, right? Yeah. Like, everyone was so good at school in our hall, in our dorm, my sophomore year, your junior year. Mm-hmm. And I just was not. I My room was like a lounge. You understand <laughs> this, right? Because <laughs> my, my room was the first room when you entered the hallway. So if my door was open, naturally, you would just look in and just, like, sit there, which is what, like, ended up happening the whole time from 2020 from 2012 to 2013 i remember i ran a lounge after you <laughs> after you dropped your blackberry into the oh, man. you got a android phone and you got put on a pokemon emulator and that was like it for two weeks oh really <laughs> i don't remember that no research no uh, reading for the you. blackberry i do recall though that was a vi- i remember that morning vividly i really? love that phone the blackberry bold yeah. I remember you did the whole rice thing. And yeah. Oh. So I, I, I woke up, right? Like the story was like, I woke up and I'm like doing things in the bathroom in the morning and I want to check the weather as I'm doing things. And so I take it out and, and it just slips my hand and it drops in the toilet and that's it. 
thankfully, like phones back then, it was easy to take apart. You just take out the battery. And like you said, you can't do that with the iPhone anymore. Yeah, they make it so like you yeah. have to pay Apple. But thankfully, like this phone was very easy to take apart. So we went to the dining hall, I think, right? Mm-hmm. We went to the dining hall, asked for some rice, uncooked. They're just like, what are you doing? <laughs> did they like give you odd looks when you did that? You were with me. I don't think. I think you were with maybe me, dude. I was. We ate together every day. Yeah, that's probably true. So, yeah, I got the rice. I throw the battery in there because it's supposed to take out the water. A week later, it's not working. And I'm just like, oh, my God. At the same time, like, not having the phone was nice. Like, Well, you couldn't even tell anyone that, like, your phone was. Yeah, was like, if I happened to see you in class or on the street, I'd be like, send me an email. <laughs> <laughs> fax like, don't me. call me. Like, <laughs> yeah, fax me. It was nice not having it back then, though. Um and then, like, I think a few months later, I, like, popped it back in, like, just because, and it, and it worked. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think nowadays, like, if you, I don't know, actually, now that you're at a smaller firm, which I think has easier work-life balance than, like, a big firm, do you think you can just disconnect? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, what, On the what's weekends. Like? Um, I mean, to an extent there's no real urgencies anymore. I mean, even within the big law firm, and Iggy and I had been talking about this the last time we met, there's a very much a false sense of urgency where the partners will ask for something that's really due like within like three weeks and they'll be like, I need it tomorrow morning. And it's like, yeah, all is day. that really necessary? But yep. um, that's what they do. But at, at the smaller firms, I mean, with the exception of like going into production and the money needs to be raised before then before then or something like it could be done tomorrow <laughs> so um obviously I, we try to like get stuff done as quickly as possible for the clients but there's not an external deadline for most things so like but. when you leave work do you have to respond to stuff like right now for instance i don't get e- i don't get messages after hours and then weekends, no. No. I mean, I actually, there was something where, like, one of our clients had a, has a show that I think it may have opened, actually, last week in uh, London. Actually, it's a little outside of London, but it's in England. And, um, like, the director, like, quit during, like, rehearsals. The director was like, I've had it, like... I'm not satisfied, like, I'm out of here. And the producer, like, was contacting us and was like, what can I do, what can I do? So, like, I, like, ran into the office because, like, I was, like, young, a young entertainment lawyer at the time. And the partner's like, what are you doing? Like, we'll deal with this on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, then when we called her on Monday in England and we were going to talk about it, she's like, oh, like, we just had a chat and everything's good. I don't need to discuss anything because like most things like blow over, like it's such a small community, like no one's going to sue each other and stuff. <laughs> but like, um, like coming from the big law firm, like whenever I got an email, like after regular working hours to the extent there were regular working hours in big law, like I would sort of look at it and be like, Oh my gosh, I need to deal with this immediately. But now it's like things will sort themselves out in due time. Well, what do you think is, uh, you know, now you have less, kind of a less pressing need to, like, immediately respond to, like, any kind of client demand as your kind of career picks up and maybe you'll, like, have a family and all of that in the future. Like, what kind of 
career do you want to see for yourself, right? Like if you're a partner at one of these firms, I feel like you're always on call because the nature of your business is no mm-hmm. longer execution. It's purely just like managing relationships where you see fit. So when you see your bosses and think about what you want to be in the future as a lawyer, I mean, I feel like the path of a lawyer for me who's not in law seems a lot less clear because your skill set is just like you have to do something in law or if you just step outside, then it's purely like, you know, it's up to you. There's nothing natural that seems to me, right? So, I mean, I, I haven't really thought of a specific thing. I mean, there's various things that I could be doing. It could be a partner, um, which is unlikely because um, I'm not a giant fan of billing everything. Yeah. Um, working in-house would be nice um, as a lawyer, but also being like an executive at an entertainment company could be neat. But I think having the transactional experience doesn't really close any doors. Like I could also just buy my experience like negotiating contracts and stuff, I could really work at any business doing that sort of stuff. So um, I have media companies, entertainment companies, a lot of doors have opened up as a result of becoming an entertainment lawyer. So, Is in-house counsel attractive to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, because I'm not going to be tracking my time. The downside is I wouldn't get as much exposure as I do now because a lot of it is like, doing the same deals over and over and over again. But um, there are advantages just in terms of being a company man and being an employee who comes in at nine in the morning and leaves at 5 p.m. on the dot. So, um, and I mean, obviously you still need to perform, but there's not as much pressure in terms of billing and all that stuff. So it's a totally different way of practicing, which I would probably enjoy, so. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you, where do you think you'll be? I don't know. It's, it's unfortunate because I guess like going into like the business world means that you have no like, you have no credentials really. It's like purely like your results or like what you make out of your life, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're a doctor, you can just practice. If you're a lawyer, you could probably just practice, right? Like it's, you, not anybody can just be a lawyer. If you have a law degree and a law degree from a good school, suddenly you have a really good chance of just popping into a job even if you disappear, I would imagine, mm-hmm. right? So for me, I don't know. It's really tough to say, right? Like there's no incentive to hire me versus like any other person with a business background, so. Sure. That, yeah. I mean, do I you mean, have any regrets about your life choices? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I wish I was more aggressive in terms of recruiting in college. Like in college, if you're recruiting for like business roles, you have so much optionality then, it's crazy. People will give you a chance even though you've done nothing, right? Like mm-hmm. I know a guy who summer, he was a summer camp counselor and then he was Goldman TMT banker after that. It's just wow. like, wow. It, it doesn't matter, right? Like just the fact that you go to a decent school, they'll just give you a shot. And as long as you prep for the interview, like that's fair game. Mm-hmm. The same sort of applies if you're like doing lateral recruiting for some of these firms now, but it's not nowhere, it's not near the level of opportunity that you're afforded then. So I think, yeah, being more aggressive recruiting, maybe joining a more prestigious firm, that would give me more of a safety net. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, like the position I'm in now is like nowhere near bad right like yeah i could have been born in like a much like more disadvantaged like background and just not have a chance to get out right so i feel fortunate 
as it is. But in the scheme of New York City, you're always thinking like, you know, what move should I be making? Like, what sure. move can I be making? Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We'll see. I don't have like a clear path or a clear passion to follow. And hence why this kind of random move is still a net positive True. in that context. And what are your thoughts about your experiences in college? Experiences in college? My yeah. thoughts on them? Good. I mean, did you like college? No. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I have a lot of... I think it was, like, again, a lot of opportunity, primarily because the diversity of people Mm -hmm. and just the tremendous amounts of those types of people, right? People from all around the world. I mean, our floor in college was Mm -hmm. pretty diverse. I would not be friends with you, Mark. If we weren't next to each other in that hallway, like, there's no reason for us to be friends, like even if we went to the same bar all the time. Mm-hmm. But back then, right, like proximity is obviously a powerful thing. Oh, sure. And also that age and time in life, incredibly powerful as well. You put those two together and like that's a tremendous opportunity. And part of like wanting that magic again is why I'm taking the GMAT as well. It won't be the same, right? You're older, you have like, you're much more focused on recruiting and all of that, but well, I think in graduate school, like some pe- a lot of people come in with like their own families. Some of them have wives right. and stuff, so they're not like looking as much to make friends. Whereas in college, it's like like Iggy, for example, didn't know anyone when he mo- came in, and like he actually came in the middle of the year. That's right. And so like there was like like he was just looking for like people to latch on to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a magical time in that sense and mm-hmm. one that can't be had again in grad school for sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the regret, not being able to maximize on that, right? Because mm-hmm. I can't drink alcohol. I've, I'm, like, basically allergic. I don't know what it is. But that scared me from going to any kind of social event freshman year. And freshman year is when all the clicks happen, right? Mm-hmm. So you're done after that, yeah. more or less. Like, I, unless I started going to church all of a sudden, like, that, that was kind of it. Yeah. So I think that that was to distill it in one way, like being antisocial the first year uh, prevented me from kind of opening that box that I think was really valuable. Where did you live the first year? Muse. Oh. So okay. I was in Beverly Hills. Yeah, right? that's like, true. <laughs> this was like the dormitory where like people would lie to get in there, right? Would they? I remember my year, like there were all these, of course, like rich kids from Long Island who would like pretend, like come up with medical like, like report that they had like bad asthma and stuff and that they needed to live there. Cause oh, it was really? like air conditioned or that's right. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. There was a ton of fraud to get in there. Really? So it was fine. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, I did like, I, I see some of the other dorms like Donlin, which is an older dorm that's co-ed. Yeah. That looked pretty fun. Like it for what f- it's known as a social dorm, but every time I go in there, it really is for whatever reason, like. I'm not sure what it was. I remember there was a kid my year who ran a, bar- ran a barber shop out of the shared bathroom. Really? He set up a stool. He set up a radio. Oh my gosh! And he could cut any kind of hair—straight hair, curly hair. Did you ever go? He cut the Iggy RA's to the hair. Shop? No, you went to the. No, barber- I never went oh. with him. But he invited me several times. And I was like, <laughs> 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 He's inviting you to the bar is basically what it is, right? Like, oh, it's, it's a whole it's social. So amazing no? how, how that uh, is like a part of that culture. So H- has Iggy changed a lot? What do you think? Has he changed a lot? Yeah, you um, and I have seen this guy the second he like came into this like world of 
I mean, it's interesting because like he when he came to college, like he wanted to be a lawyer and like probably go into politics and everything. And the last time we saw him, he was like, <laughs> I'm done with the law. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's interesting to see how people evolve. But um, he, uh, I feel like he's grown a lot. So. Do you think you or I have changed a lot? I mean, I feel like I've certainly changed. Oh, just because I was very much interested in like white collar criminal defense and now it's like I'm all entertainment. You, I really don't think you've changed that much. <laughs> Do you think you've changed? From a personality standpoint, not, not too much, honestly, right? Like, I mean... It is, I mean, it is curious. Like, I think you're probably... There's this thing, like, I feel like there's so many times in college when, like, you see people who are, like, like missing class for weeks and like getting up at <laughs> at noon and walking around in sweatpants That's and you're correct. like how are they going to like function in society and then like they're like working out like an investment bank and putting it like <laughs> 80 hours a week <laughs> so i feel like yeah you, like it's it i feel like you've like done that to an extent yeah dude the insomnia is a big problem though uh, do you have a problem at all with sleeping or is it no, pretty regular for you no I've had, I've always had an issue like in college. I remember like, that actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Freshman year was horrendous. Sophomore year was also horrendous. Didn't you have like a new mattress or something? I, f I remember Did something I? with your bed. Oh. Every year like I don't remember, but things. basically the, the situation was like, I could not fall asleep yeah. at like any reasonable hour. I would like, it would be a race to go to sleep before the sun came up mm -hmm. all the time. And... Starting work, obviously you have to force yourself to a regular schedule, but it was pretty painful adhering to that schedule. And like, now that I'm unemployed for this period of time, I've noticed like I'm sleeping like 4 a.m., 6 a.m., wow. getting up at 12, and I have to study the GMAT. And it's like, I don't actually have that much time to like productively study. Mm -hmm. So I think melatonin kind of helps, but it's like, Jesus, this is an issue. Like yeah. I realize like coming into the real world, like morning people have a huge advantage yeah on regular people mm -hmm. who are maybe like regular or like night i mean i've been thinking about this because like when you look at like ben franklin didn't they have like multiple ben, what what ben franklin what they had like multiple sleep cycles like oh I sleeping think, three now and sleeping three later and sleeping an hour and a half later and call yeah it a day, i like, think like i'm not sure i feel like our culture forces us to be morning people but there's just some people who are not that's right. So it's just really interesting to see how, like, people need to conform to the expectations. Like, I feel like certainly, at least with me, like, my most productive hours are not the hours necessarily that I'm in the office. Like, I feel like I'm actually better working at, like, in the evening. I feel like 3 to 12, I can really pump some stuff out. Yeah. And I nine feel like to nine, nine to, 12, to is 12, it's like, what's done. happening here? Like, give me emails I can respond to in one word. Yeah. Or like, let me go make some coffee. Like, that's it. I mean, I haven't tracked it, but I'm sure that like with most of my work, like I'm like doing all the like low hanging fruit from nine to 12. Right. And then like the more su substantial stuff happens probably around like four, five, six. 
Have you tried to adopt behaviors or like optimize your settings so that you're more calibrated towards having more of a morning lifestyle where you're like you're productive from eight or seven or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about this a lot and it's something that like I've been wanting to try to do. But the thing is like realistically because of all the stuff that I do, like I'm getting home late and I still like want to like do things like on my own, like like eat, like read a bit. Suddenly it's one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's really difficult to like change that cycle. And like one of my friends said like he was going to try to get in bed at like 10 p.m. or like nine. And it's like you could try adopting that sort of lifestyle, but it's difficult. I wonder how much of it is because we live in a city. And you know what's weird? Like I live, I've lived in Flushing and Bayside, which are like, okay, Flushing's. I guess urban by other people's standards, not necessarily here, but like, I mean, Flushing's flush. It's yeah, I'm Flushing it's urban, Main but it's not like skyscrapers. And yeah. Stuff. Fun fact: Flushing Main Street is the fourth busiest intersection in New York City. That's interesting. Isn't that crazy? It's like that. right behind Herald Square, Times Square, Times Square, somewhere else, maybe Union Square. I mean, Main and then Street is like its own separate world. Like, I my dentist is in Main. Like what? Mains. Yeah, I go to a dentist. He's like a Jewish dentist, but he's in the, like Just hanging on, on over Street, there. And like, I walk there and like nothing's in English. Like I have no clue. I go I go through the supermarkets and it's like everyone's like turning at me. And <laughs> there's like some like crazy scenes there. Like what have you seen? Um, I remember there was like. Like, it was with fish, and they were, like, live fish just, like, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she would just, like, grab them and, like, put them in a bag. And That's it's right. like, what's going on? And <laughs> I remember someone was buying, like, crabs, and that she would just, like, take, like, crabs that were, like, still, like, like trying to, like, pinch her. And she would just throw them in the bag, and it's like, like <laughs> what are people going to do with a live crab? So, um, yeah, I mean, there's all this stuff. They have, uh, like, a ton of, like, vegetable, like all this like dried stuff in the front. It's a, it's a unique experience. Uh, whenever I have friends from Manhattan visit, the second we walk through one of these, they just start shopping. Yeah. Like immediately. I'm like, why are you picking up cucumbers? Like, it's just so cheap. It is cheap. Have you been tempted to do that? Um, do you cook? I do. Um, not as much as I did in law school actually, but um, I, like the some of the produce there is very cheap. I buy all my fruit on from street vendors though. So. Is street vendors in New York? Yeah. They look expensive. No, actually like especially like around Chinatown. Oh very yeah, cheap. yeah, yeah. That's right. Um it's very interesting how the fruit works in New York because supposedly there's this place in Brooklyn, I think, where all the fruit fruit that ends up in New York City goes to. And in the beginning of the day, it's all like Whole Foods and stuff goes and they choose all the stuff they want. And as it goes later in the day with the stuff that the big stores don't want, that's what the um, vendors get. And then that's how they charge uh, less money. Yeah, I've heard an interesting thing, like the Chinese supermarkets here. Yeah. Like, there's three Chinatowns, right? I think they get their own. They're like off the grid. Or they something. all, they do a group buy from some farm upstate. Yeah. And like nobody else can get there. Exactly. you need to know Mandarin, right? Yeah. So. It's kind Crazy. of fascinating. They yeah. all get it from the same place, but like, it's always like, oh, I go here for my radishes. I go here for my cats. <laughs> like, dude, they're all from the same place in like Rochester. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's crazy. But I remember growing up, looking to the sky. Like, first of all, growing up and going to bed, my bed 
you know, your eyes get kind of used to the light and you can see everything in your room all of a sudden, even though the lights are off, one. Mm-hmm. And then two, when I look outside, the sky is always glowing orange slightly at night. Oh. But then I like go outside the city and I'm like, neither of those two things are normal at all. There's a reason these children's books have the sky painted pitch black because it's supposed to be pitch black. Yeah. But all the street lights and stuff, even in Bayside, which is like, it's so suburban out there. Even mm-hmm. over there, there's so much light artificially produced. It's like, is this sleep pattern being negatively affected by the fact that we're like, we're basically like always in lighted environments. I wonder. Because in, in college, the reason I could sleep like that was like, Muse came with blackout curtains. Oh, really? So it was game over. I couldn't tell Please what time like it was. Like a Hilton But yeah, I mean, like living in New York, because you live in Midtown, mm-hmm. what the hell is it like sleeping? I mean, we're just like sitting at home. Like, it's what floor are you on? I'm on the ninth floor. So what is that like on the ninth floor in Midtown? I mean, I have windows, but you obviously don't have a view <laughs> because it's like I have like the MGM building right or like there. So, um, I mean, I have curtains and everything, so it's fine, but, um, it's certainly like not like Ithaca, New York, where I had like the lake out (laughs) my window. You did? Yeah. Yeah, We had, we were right next to each other. I'm sure we did, right? Some buildings did. Maybe ours too. I don't know. That was seven years ago. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. Would you go back? Because my dad was telling me, oh, maybe you can go to Cornell for your MBA too. I think you may be able to do it in New York City, actually. My friend applied for Cornell Tech, which is in New York. Would you? I know you went to law school in Chicago. If you were to go go for an advanced degree and you had the option to go to Ithaca, assume it's, you know, it's not a Harvard-level degree, but it's not like Podunk State. It's like, it's a decent degree. If that was a choice, would you consider it? Do I need to do it in Ithaca? Yeah. No, definitely not. Why? It's so isolated from everything. Mm -hmm. It's so isolated from everything in New York City. And so I don't think at my age, after having lived in Manhattan, I would be able to return to that sort of lifestyle. I mean, would you? I miss, I miss like being in the campus bubble. I think that's a really cool experience. But that wouldn't be there as a graduate student, right? I don't know. I mean, you went to Chicago, but Chicago's in the city, right? I was in or the Hyde south Park. side of Chicago, Hyde Park. But it's still like within range of like a city where you're like, you can just like escape. There, you're yeah. not going nowhere. Like, I don't exactly. care how old you are. You're, you're going nowhere. Like, New York City's not that close. I mean, there was very little to do outside of the campus um i still need to check out wegmans actually in brooklyn maybe that's you right. are but that, that's like the only reason i would ever return to ithaca is to go to that wegmans wow that so the like the, the quaint little campus bubble you don't miss i feel like you'd have some level of that as a grad student it's just grad student world the, not I, like cornell daily sun like you read the newspaper and it's like Oh, my classmates. Like, it's not like that, obviously. I mean, Delhi Sun was trash, though, because it would... Nobody like, said it was good journalism. It's, it's they a horrendous newspaper. They would report on stuff that was, like, known for, like, months. Like, I remember, <laughs> like, a front-page story was, like, this place on College Town has been vacant. And it's like, yeah, I know. I've passed it for, like, the past four months. Like, where <laughs> um, but, I mean, the campus bubble, 
I feel like at least when I was there, because of the whole like war against the fraternities and stuff, oh, yeah, like yeah. I didn't really enjoy it that much. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't think neither of us were like too involved in it. No. Like SA, I, no. it had no interest to me. But I think also that whole culture of just like every week was like a different party at a fraternity and like people getting smashed. It was like the same thing over and over again. I mean, as someone who can't drink alcohol, that was like, yeah, I can't, I don't even have a choice here. Right. Like, yeah, but that was like it. Like that that, was it. It was like the hockey games too. That like, they're not that, I don't think I've been to one. Oh, I've only been a great experience, but like there's really nothing else. Like you, I, I guess there was that mall, but it was like destiny or Ithaca mall. Ithaca mall. What's That's destiny? The one in Syracuse, like the third biggest mall oh, in the, the United carousel? States. You gotta like drive around the mall to get to the next store. That's <laughs> how big it is. Dude, it's like a ten minute ride to get to the other side. Um yeah, I just there there was it was a cemetery. There was nothing happening socially there. So I think where we were on West, where you were for how many years? Two or three? Three. And that was dude, that a bad decision. Dude, I mean it was a horrendous part of campus. There is no social life. We were the most social people. Which is scary. We, no, we were not 95th because there were cooler people than us for sure. sure. I think we were like 65th or 75th percentile. I think, the, I mean, the housing s- system there was horrible because like. They should have, dude, they should have the freshmen on West. I think that would be fun. Maybe. It's kind of like at Yale, they have those houses. Yeah. And, like, that's part of your identity and you get really tight with all the kids in your building. Yeah. That would have been cool. As a sophomore. I mean, they should have done it because it was so much from the first year in, the, in like, North, North Campus. And then they, everyone needs to break up, essentially, because they don't have enough they houses. They don't have enough housing. That's right. So some people will go to the Greek system and you never hear of them again. And then most people, I don't think, end up on West Campus. We it's did. It's the minority. Like, we did. But then, like, a lot of our friends were, like, spl- split off to go to, like, College Town and, like, other areas. And then they send in all these transfer students on West Campus. Who are who, you guys? Who, yeah, but, I mean, a lot of them, like, don't really integrate with the rest they of They have a horrible transition plan for those like, guys. They, yeah. They just they, leave them out there. And they just, like, they put them in the worst part of campus. community of, like, transfer students. So it was just a really bad mix and also like you would walk through the halls on west campus and it would be like quiet like it's really happening. bad so like i feel like i had to be the social light yeah you were probably the most social and you didn't like go at her and, and i was just like oh my god open. you know who was suffering though greg sidon oh yeah he suffered big time he actually didn't he have like he started like paying for a place in the frat house and kept his place on west after he got in, yeah. yeah. I would do that too, to be honest with you. Like paying two rents. Dude, I would I would do anything to be in a frat house with people that I enjoyed. Oh yeah. Like it's worth like whatever, like I'm sure it was like a thousand bucks or like maybe two thousand tops. I mean, I was actually very dues. close to joining a frat house, mostly because I needed the bed. <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean with with West Campus, I always got in at the very last minute. Uh like usually blocking with random people. Um, but I lived in a, I lived in a fraternity room, one of my uh, really? senior semesters, my senior fall. Oh. Seal and Serpent, which was like 
the least like popular fraternity. Frat. Yeah. <laughs> Hence why they have so many rooms. Yeah. It was a boarder's place. I remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, ultimately I like the f- fraternity that I was looking at, like it was like inhospitable really. Where? Fiji. What? They had rooms? Well, I was thinking about joining. Oh, they gave you an offer? No, I I didn't. I was able to get something on West. But um, I've been there. Like some of those rooms are disgusting. All of them like are disgusting. They have a bathroom upstairs that's called Vietnam because <laughs> <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, some of those houses, like the fire department, could easily condemn it's them. It's really bad. So. Because think about like you see anyone's room in college and it's bad. Oh yeah, it's just bad. But Those it's also amazing that like I was able to live in like a closet essentially. We lived in because like I moved out to College Town and like I lived in Harry Potter's like little cupboard for like <laughs> it's like a thousand bucks. What the? F- I couldn't open my door fully. It would hit the desk every time. I had to squeeze my way in. And dude, there was a beehive in my walls. Like I kept getting bit every day. And I'm like, why the? F- why am I getting bit? Oh my and gosh. then I like, I would like wake up and turn on the lights and then the lamp is above me so it's a light bulb with like a little glass bowl under it like to hide the gla- like the bulb right and in it i see like these like all these like little like couple of like oval things it's bees dead bees that hit the light bulb oh and like are in the p- i have to call an exterminator stay out of my week my room for like a week it's just like out y'all being a college town slumlord is one of the best jobs <laughs> The best jobs from like a financial perspective. You don't have to upkeep anything and yeah. you can charge those outrageous rents for that area. West, dude, you were on there. For, I, I think you said you didn't love it that much for three years, but it has its pros. I too. mean, the uh, dining hall was in the building. I mean, on paper, it looked like a sweet place to live. In reality, it was a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Yeah, it's like not, not. I don't even think it's about the building. It's just like the way the system is set up. Oh, it's the people who live there. I think to an extent. Yeah, it's like the very social people go to frat, like and go to the Greek. Realistically, system. the people who had friends went with them to, to like college, college town. town and stuff. So you're getting all that. It's cheaper than going to the West. Yeah. So, it, it was people who didn't want to like have like interact and have fun, and then transfers who like didn't know anyone. Yeah, Cornell it. drastically changed for me. The second I went on West instead of like going out of college yeah. town and it like reverted when I went to college town. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's shocking, but you got to go now, right? Yeah. All right, Mark, thank you for joining. Uh, pleasure it was a pleasure to, to have you. He is, I don't know if anyone knows, he is my most loyal listener. I think you've listened to almost how many of them? Every single one. Every single one. And I enjoy everyone. Thank you for joining Mark. Bye-bye. Thanks.